Luke chapter 3, verse 15 to 23. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering if their hearts, in their hearts, if John might possibly be Christ, the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I come, the tongues of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preaching the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily from like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And we're now going to look at uh, Luke chapter 4, um, starting at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. We're now going to look at verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Great, well keep your Bibles open there if you would. And I'm just going to pray as we dive in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to look into your holy word. Uh, and we pray that you would feed us through holy scripture as your spirit applies it to our hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you know each one of us here, and that you're able to speak your word directly to each of us, myself included. So please, Lord, speak. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, it's happened again. Uh, if you've been a Christian long enough, I'm sure it will happen to you if it hasn't already. Over the past 25 years, I've been a Christian. It's happened to me several times. Every time it happens, though, I'm still surprised, still hurt. I'm talking about when a Christian leader I've looked up to to teach me the Word of God and show me what it means to be a Christian minister at some early part of my life, then goes on to make a major mistake in their life and ministry, and not only goes on to make a major mistake, but refuses when called back to Christ to turn and repent and start obeying Jesus again. And they keep going, and they end up shipwrecking their faith and shipwrecking their ministry. I would have shared with you before that one of the first people who mentored me as a young Christian taught me what it meant to, meant to be a Christian husband and father in a small mentoring group, uh, went on to eventually uh, commit adultery against his own wife and to leave her. And it's not only that he made that mistake, it's that, that sin that he refused then to turn back to Christ and to be reconciled and to seek to obey Jesus again. And then just as we came through the autumn, I learned that a teacher back in Canada who, while I was uh, studying in a seminary there, a man, a great man who taught me the Bible and uh, theology, uh, was receiving complaints of inappropriate comments that he was making to younger women students, which he called banter. And then a very inappropriate email exchange between him and one of these female students emerged and an investigation uh, ensued. And it wasn't just that that happened, but that he then kind of doubled down and refused to acknowledge the wrongdoing, has yet to say sorry, and even just released his next theology book last week. Each time it happens, I don't wag a finger. I get an inner chill, a caution. If these leaders who have taught the word to me and have gone ahead of me can fail so badly in their Christian character and then go on to shipwreck their ministry and deeply wound their families, how can I hope to be faithful myself? You might wonder yourself, when you're finding it hard to follow Jesus and live the Christian life, how can I do it? How can anyone do it? And we'll bring those questions up on the screen, Martin, if we can. That's the professor that I mentioned. And how can I do it? How can anyone do it? How can anyone go on to obey Christ? We can get this hopelessness within us when we see Christian leaders we've trusted fail and go on refusing to repent. You see, we're in a series called Empowered, Life Together in the Holy Spirit. And last week, we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit in our creation as human beings and in our spiritual recreation, God's gift of new birth to us, which is how our Christian faith starts. But today, we're looking at how we go on in the Christian faith once we've been born again. And we're focusing here on the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' life and ministry, the Son of God become fully human 
who nonetheless needed the Holy Spirit to empower his obedience as a human being. You might wonder yourself, when you're finding it hard to follow Jesus and live the Christian life, can I really look to Jesus as my example? Because after all, he's the Son of God. Does he not kind of cheat when it comes to obedience to his Father? Doesn't he just kind of lean back and rely on his divinity, his, his nature as the Son of God to kind of power him through? So how then can I look to him for inspiration in my Christian faith? But in each of these three accounts that we're going to look at in God's word, his baptism, his temptation, and the start of his ministry, yes, he stands head and shoulders above everyone else. He's totally unique, the one and only Son of God. His baptism is a very unique baptism, that's obvious. His temptation is, is second to none, the pressure that he's under. It's a very unique temptation. The start of his ministry as the Messiah is a completely unique beginning to any ministry. It really does stand head and shoulders above any other ministry that we've seen in the Bible up until Jesus' point or after uh, Jesus, we meet Jesus in the Gospels. Yes, he's totally unique. But once we see that, we also see how in his baptism, his temptation, and his ministry... We who follow after him also learn something from his own baptism for us. We learn something about a temptation through seeing him go through temptation. And we learn something about the nature of our ministry by seeing the start of his. So on one level, Jesus is totally unique. Everything he goes through, he goes through for us. He's alone. No one else could do what he does. He's the only Messiah, the only Son of God, the only anointed one, anointed by the Holy Spirit as he is. But on the other, another level, for those of us who trust in him, Luke is showing us that Jesus is also blazing a trail for all who would follow after, follow after him once we trust in him. His life then becomes a model for us. His baptism, a model for ours. His temptation, a model for how we wrestle with testing, and his start of ministry, a model for how we do ministry. So then our question is, how can I do it? How can anyone do it? Becomes, well, how did Jesus stay faithful to his Father? And that's how we go on to stay faithful ourselves. Three things. We're going to look at Jesus' identity in his baptism, his temptation, and his ministry, identity, temptation, and ministry, and how the Holy Spirit worked in each of these as he does in us. So first, the Spirit confirmed Jesus' identity as God's Son in baptism. The Spirit confirmed Jesus' identity in baptism. Now look at this with me. Uh, look at John, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. By this point, John the Baptist has been baptizing many in the Jordan River. He's been proclaiming that one would come after him who's greater than he, that he's not the Messiah, but one is coming who will baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then, verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. 
And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. So picture this, picture as if you were there on the banks of the Jordan. Uh, John the Baptist as, as baptizing many and this man comes to whom John seems to give special attention. John ends up baptizing him in the Jordan, and Jesus goes under the water completely. He's brought back up from the water, and Luke's the only one of all those gospel writers who share Jesus' baptism with us. He's the only one who makes the point that after that, Jesus was praying. So Jesus is there praying to his Father, and all of a sudden, the heavens are pulled open. And the Holy Spirit descends, Luke tells us, bodily, in the form of what looked like a dove. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen a dove descend, but I did a bit of research online to try and get a sense for what it might be like. And I guess it's kind of like the dove's wings are kind of drawn back like that as he resists the uh, atmosphere and just slowly drops down as the dove would on a branch or whatever. And I guess that's what it must have been like the Holy Spirit, in bodily form, looking like a dove, descends upon Jesus there in the Jordan as he's praying. Imagine the scene. Heaven's opened. Holy Spirit comes down and rests upon uh, Jesus. And then there's a voice from heaven, an audible voice, I guess seemingly coming from above. That's what from heaven would have meant. This is my son. You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, what is this about and what does it mean for us? Clearly, this event confirmed Jesus' identity as totally unique on one level. Uh, God himself, his voice is heard, this is my son. The Holy Spirit is given to him, but given in an incredible way. No other baptism like this is recorded in Scripture. The, the Holy Spirit coming in the form of a dove, visibly, a bodily. The heavens themselves being torn open. And Jesus' identity is confirmed as he passes through the waters of baptism. He's God's beloved son. Now, surely it would have meant something to the crowds looking on. We're told in John's gospel that John the Baptist had been told before this happened that the one on whom he saw the Spirit descend would be the Messiah. So it clearly meant something for John. It would have meant something for the onlookers as well. But let's not pretend uh, that it didn't mean something for Jesus. It did mean something for him. Notice that God's words are directed at Jesus, not This is my son, but you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Here, Jesus' identity is confirmed both by the word, God's spoken word, and by the presence of the Holy Spirit upon him. Word and spirit going hand in hand to say to Jesus, you're mine. You belong to me. Now, this is, of course, utterly unique for Jesus. 
but it also means something for us too in our baptism and in our identity. When I was a younger minister, I did some leadership training, and I vividly remember one of the seasoned leaders telling us that of all the different ministry failures that he had seen in his long-standing ministry, when he pushed on those different failures, almost in every instance, there was an issue of identity at the heart of the person's heart that they were compensating for. Their identity in Christ had not yet been settled and, and had not yet become the foundation of their lives. And these ministers would then seek their identity in their performance or in sexual uh, uh, acting out or in a host of other things that would ensnare these ministers because their identity as a child of God was not yet where they went to to find their security and their peace. Where do you look to for your identity? You see, Jesus here is, yes, totally unique in this, but he's also a model for us. And the New Testament goes on to say this, that we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're forgiven, we receive the Holy Spirit, uh, and that Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that we're God's. Romans 8 puts it this way, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. And so when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he gives you the Holy Spirit to live inside you. And that spirit settles your identity and says, you're mine, you're mine. Your mind. You don't need to seek your identity in all these other things. Seek it in me. And a key application where we work this out is in prayer. Luke, throughout his gospel, emphasizes prayer again and again and again. And he emphasizes it here in Jesus' baptism. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. And though we might know that God calls us his own children when we trust in Christ. It's in prayer that we have to work out that identity as different other sources of identity tempt our souls and we fight them off in prayer and say, no God, my identity is in you. So the Spirit confirmed Jesus' identity as God's son in baptism and the Spirit confirms our identity as well. Secondly, the Spirit empowered Jesus to resist temptation. The Spirit empowered Jesus to resist temptation. We're not going to read the whole account of Jesus' temptation, but just those first four verses of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So Jesus comes up from the Jordan River, having been baptized. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and is tempted by the devil through that time. At the end of those 40 days, he's hungry. 
and the height of the devil's temptations now storm in upon Jesus. Take these stones and make them bread. If you are who you say you are, you can do this. End your hunger. Come on and feast. Your pain will be relieved. You'll have a sense of strength again. Is it really that big of a deal? Come on, do it. Take, eat. And then two other temptations come on. Uh, the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world and promises to give them to Jesus if he would just bow down and worship Satan. Jesus resists that by again appealing to God's word. And then the devil takes him to the top of the temple and says, if you would throw yourself off, God will lift you up. And, and Jesus again quotes God's word to resist temptation. Now what's going on here? The epistle uh, written by James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to people. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So we're, we're to understand here that the Holy Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness, but it's not God who tempts Jesus. God allows Jesus to be tempted by the devil. And notice that the mention of the Holy Spirit kind of begins and ends the temptation account. 4 verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then 4 verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Here's what we're to understand. It's not as if the Holy Spirit took Jesus into the wilderness, and then as he was tempted, kind of vacated the scene. We're to understand that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit throughout his temptations. He was filled with the Holy Spirit while he felt horribly desperate and hungry. He was filled by the Holy Spirit when he felt tempted to do what the devil was tempting him to do. Do you see that? I wonder if at times when I'm feeling tempted to sin, that part of me doesn't think, well, clearly the Holy Spirit isn't with me. And that's why I'm feeling the pull to do this thing that I know is wrong. But do you see here that we can be both at one and the same time full of the Holy Spirit and feel weak, hungry, at the end of ourselves, tempted? The fact that you're tempted and feeling tempted is not a sign that you don't have the Holy Spirit with you as a Christian. If you trust in Jesus Christ and you still feel weak and tempted and you, part of you wants to sin, that doesn't mean that the Spirit isn't with you. If you trust Christ, the Spirit is within you. And the key thing when feeling tempted is what you do from there. And here, Jesus serves again as an example to us. And notice word and spirit are again going hand in hand. Jesus resists the devil's temptation by appealing to God's word and his, his promises. And that's the sword that he uses in the power of the Spirit to cut down the devil's temptations. 
Here's what this means in my life. Let's say that I'm feeling uh, all of a sudden some impure thoughts arise within my heart. I don't think because of that the Spirit's not with me. But I also don't just try and exert my will to, to uh, on its own, fight the, the impure thoughts that are arising within me. I am trying more and more to get in the habit of quoting some part of God's word that helps me really uh, fight the temptation. Like when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God in the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel. Yes, Andrew. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's a promise from him. And if I have a pure heart and put my trust in him, one day I'll see God. And that promise from God, which I cling to in faith by holding on to his word, uh, is a means by which the Spirit then helps me put that sin of an impure heart to death. So you can be filled with the Spirit and yet feel temptation. And you can rely on God's Spirit to put sin to death by trusting in God's promises as Jesus did. The Spirit empowered Jesus to resist temptation, and the Spirit empowers us to resist temptation too. So we've looked at identity, and now we've looked at the Spirit's role in helping us resist the devil's temptations. And finally, we'll look at the Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry to the poor. And so if we go a bit further in chapter 4, uh, Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, goes to his hometown and uh, in Galilee heads into Nazareth, goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And they would often open the scriptures and have someone read it. And it's given to Jesus to read. He stands up. He's handed the prophet Isaiah, the scroll that had Isaiah on it. And Jesus unrolls to chapter, what we, know, what we now know as chapter 61. And these are the words that he quotes. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Quoting Isaiah, he rolls up the scroll, uh, he, he sits down, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are on him, and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the anointed one, the Messiah that Isaiah the prophet promised. Today, this very day, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled because I've come, the anointed one. And immediately before this, we're told that they were all amazed about Jesus. Immediately after he quotes this words, these words, we're told that they're amazed about him again. But then Jesus goes on to confront them, and it's not moments later that the crowd turns on him and drags him to the edge of the hill of Nazareth there near the synagogue, and they're about to throw him off the hill, and he walks through the crowd. You see, Jesus didn't seek prestige. He didn't seek the praises of the powerful people. The powerful people, the elites of the land, wanted to get rid of Jesus right from the beginning. And that went on and took him right to the cross. Jesus didn't seek primarily to have his ministry among the powerful. 
quoting Isaiah 61, notice who he mentions. The poor, those in prison, the disabled, those oppressed. Those are the ones to whom Jesus ministered in the in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit focused Jesus' ministry, not on the haves, but on the have-nots. Of course, his gospel is for everyone. He did spend some time in the home of people who had religious power, but they always became uncomfortable with him. And he focused his ministry in the power of the Spirit on those who were poor, imprisoned, oppressed, disabled. And those are the ones who first got a glimpse as to who he was. Here again, we see the Word and the Spirit going hand in hand. The Word in his quotation of Isaiah 61, and yet the whole thing is surrounded by the Spirit's work. And as we seek to be led by the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus today, as he continues his ministry through us, we'll find more and more as we go along that he's going to lead us alongside the poor that we're going to want to be hospitable to people who maybe feel like they, they wouldn't normally be a part of, like the kinds of people who are in our families or in our schools or on our sports, sports teams. And we're going to learn, as Jesus leads us in the power of the Spirit, to more and more call the people he mentions here our friends, our brothers and sisters, ones from whom we learn, uh, even as we seek to hold out Jesus' to them. Tuesday night, I'll close with this story. We uh, went out to um, tell some folks on the streets about our open door breakfast club, uh, where we open up at 7.30 and put on a nice hot meal. And we were over by St. Mungo's uh, in behind the TVP police station. And we came across this one uh, giant guy uh, who, who noticed what we were doing in handing a leaflet to a, a woman who was covered in her duvet in an opening there. And he kind of came up to us in part wonderfully being a bit protective of her. And we shared with him what we were up to, and he quickly was at ease. And he said, oh, you guys are Christians. Yes, we're Christians. This is me and Hudson and my son Judah. And he goes on to say well, he, that he was a Catholic, and the Irish accent was wonderfully thick. I love that Irish Republic accent. And uh, we had a warm conversation there and offered to pray with this man. And so we all bow our heads. He was keen to pray. We all bow our heads to pray. And we look up and we see his hands like this, open like this. And, and we're kind of wondering what he's doing. And he says, are we not going to hold hands, he says. And so us four guys then hold hands together and we bow with him. This man who lived in, lives in St. Mungo's and is trying to get back on his feet, get his own place, his own job. And there, holding hands with him, this man I'm sure who could identify with Jesus' words here, among the poor, good news for the poor, holding hands with him, praying with him in that circle, the highlight of my week, a sense of God's power and his ministry and his grace at work. So how do I do it? How does anyone do it? Well, how did Jesus Christ stay faithful to God right to the end? How can we? Well, we can do that as we, like him, find our identity in the Spirit and Him making us a child of God. We can do it as Jesus did, as we trust not in our own strength, but in the Spirit to enable us to resist temptation. And we can do it as we kind of 
say no to seeking power and prestige and instead allow the Spirit to lead us alongside the poor, the oppressed, the hungry. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and then Glenn's going to lead us coming to Jesus as the hungry, needing his nourishment around this table. Let's pray as the band comes up to lead us. Lord, we all feel that temptation to walk away from you, to shipwreck the faith. It at times can feel so fragile and we feel so weak. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, you've gone ahead of us, that your identity as the Son of God confirmed at your baptism and by the Holy Spirit is, is one that we can enter into as we trust you and we ourselves become children of God. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can empower our obedience as we cling to God's word in temptation. And thank you that we needn't seek prestige and power, but that you're leading us to get alongside the poor. We worship you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.